Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. morning we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 67, the 67th Psalm. And the Psalter of the Psalms are the hymn book of God's people. They are the songs that the people of Israel would have sung in their worship services. Um, and God has actually given us this as a template for how we are to worship him, how we are to interact with him. And this psalm is no different. We're going to be looking at Psalm 67 this morning. You can go ahead and stand with me and we will read it together. I'm reading from the New International Version this morning. Psalm 67. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the people praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this psalm, this psalm of praise to you, this psalm of asking of your favor, the psalm of calling us to be who you've called us to be. I pray, Lord, that you would shape our hearts by the power of your spirit through the hearing of your word this morning. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if there's any nerds out there, perhaps you are familiar, like I am, with the early 90s cult television show, Quantum Leap. Anyone know what Quantum Leap is? All right, got a couple hands there. Uh, I know it's, it wasn't very popular even at the time. It's kind of become a cult classic in the time since. But in Quantum Leap, it follows this uh, brilliant scientist guy named Samuel Beckett as he travels through time. So he invents this time machine, essentially, and he goes into it, but he starts the process too early, so instead of sending his body back in time, it only sends his consciousness back. And he ends up in each episode in the body of a different uh, person in history, and he is supposed to right some sort of wrong that has been done in history um, to make things good again. So the problem is, whenever he arrives into this new body, and he switches to a different one all the time, He doesn't really know where he is or what's going on, so he has to answer two questions. Fortunately, he has his friends to help him. His friend, Al, who's back in the present time, is somehow able to communicate to him, as well as, like, the computer that he's... I don't really understand it. Um, But anyway, they're, they're communicating to him, and they're trying to help him answer these two questions, two main questions each time he jumps into the body of someone new. They help him answer, what is the story that I'm in right now? What is the story? And who am I in it? For instance, in one episode, he jumps into uh, the life of someone and he realizes that the story is that he's a 
He is in this situation with a bunch of nuns. The nuns want to finance their new chapel, which is fine. But then he's got to figure out, who am I in this? And in this story, he is a boxer who somehow needs to win this prize fight to win enough money for the monastery so the nuns can build their uh, new chapel. Um, So each time he's answering those questions, who am I in this story? And what is the story overall? What is the story overall? Who am I in it? And he can't do anything until he figures out those answers. Seems true for us. We have to ask these questions about the life, the world we live in. What is the overall story of the world we live in? What is going on in this world where we find ourselves? And two, who am I in it? If we don't answer those questions, or the way we answer those questions, perhaps it's better to say, the way we answer those questions affects the way we live our lives affects what we do, what we try to accomplish, where we try to find our hope and our joy, etc. One would call the answers to these two questions, what is the story, where am I in it, as your worldview. What is your worldview? What affects the way you view the world and how you live in it? Everyone's got a worldview. Everyone's got one. Whether you've thought about these questions or not, you right now sitting there have a way that you answer these questions. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you um, are whoever you are, whatever culture you come from, you have a way of viewing the world and how you fit into it. One of the questions I want to answer first this morning is, what is the worldview of our culture? I'm talking about not the church. I'm talking about the general culture in which we live in. And to answer that question, i got to give a little caveat that it's a big question. right? It's a really big question. And not only is it hard to identify what the cultural narrative is in our culture, it is also different for each person. Each person kind of has different takes on what the world is about and how they view themselves in it. There's slightly differences, slight differences between each person. So what I'm saying are broad strokes. I'm not saying they apply to every single person in all of culture. But there are some common themes that Tim Keller and others have written about um, that I'm going to borrow from this morning to kind of give an understanding of kind of where does our world stand today. Um, Our cultural narrative tends to believe that the story, what is the story of the world? Well, the material world, the material world that we live in, the physical world, is all there is. Okay? That's all there is. There is not really much supernatural or there's not really a God, at least not one that is really involved. The material world is ultimate in everything. And everything we have and do relates to the material world. And therefore, if the material world is everything, then where does our hope come from? Our hope is then placed into human advancement. The more humans advance in this science or that, the better our society will become. It is human advancement that will provide the solution to the problems we have in our culture, in our society. The brokenness, the parts of the corruption, the uh, hunger, whatever the problem is that you identify, we look to human achievement to solve those problems. So if we just increase our 
uh, our knowledge of health. We can make people live longer. We can get people better quality of life. We understand emotional health better. We can help people be happier and less depressed, less anxious. If we just understand the social sciences better, we can help people get along better, operate together more healthfully. If we understand economics better, we can make sure that hunger and poverty are not as big of a problem. If we just understand political science better, we can make sure that our governments work the way that they should. And if we just develop the right technology, that would potentially solve the problems that we have. We'd be able to have the tools we need to fix our problems. Right? And if that's kind of our hope, where does our joy come from? Well, the joy in our, in our society comes from following your personal desires. If you follow what feels right to you, if you follow what feels best for you, that is what's going to bring you joy. If you are your most authentic self, that is where you're going to find the most fulfillment. That is where you're going to find the most joy. Truth is individually what seems right to each person. So if the story is that the material world is everything, Science and technology, advancement are our hope, our personal desires are our joy. What does that make us in this scenario? It makes us the king. It makes us the ones who, maybe we're not in control of everything, but it makes us the ones who are autonomous over our lives. We are the ones who make all the decisions. We are the ones who decide what is best for us. This is not the worldview that the Bible gives us. This is opposite of what the worldview the Bible gives us. And my goal this morning is not just to tell you what the biblical worldview is, but to explain why it's actually better than this worldview. This morning we're looking at the Psalms. The Psalms, um, as I've mentioned, are the hymn book of God's people. They are worship. A lot of times when we think about what is worship, or you hear that term worship, you're thinking, worship is where I express my feelings, my beliefs, my uh, self to God. It's me saying, this is what I feel about God and I want to express it to Him. I'm not saying that's not part of it, but that's not the core identity of what worship is. Worship is actually something God has given us as a tool to form us. It actually forms our hearts. It actually shapes our hearts. And it actually shapes our hearts around a particular worldview. What God claims and what we believe is the true worldview. A worldview in which God is king. Which God is God and we are not. An accurate worldview. As we sing songs, as we pray, as we do all of these things that are, we consider parts of private or corporate worship, God is using those things to shape our hearts, to shape the eyes of our hearts, to see the world the way He sees it, to see reality as it really is. So what is this worldview that this psalm gives us? Well, that's our sermon topic this morning. The worldview that this psalm gives us is going to be answered by those two questions. And those are our two points this morning. What is the true story that the Bible gives us? What is the story? And who are we in it? What is the story and who are we in it? What is the true story? Well, the true story is that we are not autonomous. We are not king, but that God himself 
is our king. That's what they're singing here in verse 4. It says, May the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. As we sing this, it's modeling our hearts to remember that we are not king, but God is the king. Who's seen Monty Python? How many of you guys have seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? A few of you, okay. So I'm going all nerdy references this morning, I know. But some of you love it. Um, so, Monty Python, Holy Grail. There's this famous scene where King Arthur, this comedy from the 70s, and this King Arthur's coming to these peasants, and he proclaims to him, quite uninvited, that he is their king. And the peasant's like, who made you king? I didn't vote for you, right? That's how the, how the lines go back and forth. And then they say this really interesting thing. It's like, well, I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. I thought about that uh, this week as I was preparing this sermon because I wondered if some of us, kind of when we hear that, well, God is king, that's kind of off-putting to us. Who is this guy claiming his king? I'm not, I didn't vote for him. Not only did I not vote for him, but the idea of being an autonomous collective sounds a bit better to me. Being in charge of myself, I don't need someone else telling me what to do. I want to decide what's best for me. My autonomy is what is going to decide what is best for me. But if we read the story of Scripture, I think we find a very honest and accurate picture of what happens when people are autonomous. In fact, autonomy is the sin of the garden. Autonomy is the original sin when man said, hey, I don't need God anymore. I'm going to eat this fruit. But really, it's not about the fruit. It's really about me saying, hey, I don't want God anymore. I don't want God. I can do things on my own. I know what's best for me, better than anyone else does. I don't need God to tell me what to do. Autonomy is the sin of the Bible. It's the sin, the original sin. It is the sin that has driven all other brokenness in this world. Just look naturally at the world we live in. Look at it. Just look at it with your eyes. Right? What do you see? You see a world that, yeah, sure, we have had plenty of human advancements. We have had amazing technological achievements. We have had amazing movement forward in health and mental science. All kinds of things. Amazing advancements in, in technology and connection of people. But every connection, no matter how much we advance, we still are not solving problems. They're not being solved. And ultimately, actually, we're creating new ones. Every time it seems like we've created a a solution to a problem, other problems exist, right? Now all these people are connected, so now the humanity can work together so much better. There's going to be so much more harmony because we can all like share information with one another and you can, you can share with this and you can share with this and we'll just advance more quickly and da 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 and then you just look at social media and you're like oh this is what it was um, just the division that has happened the polemicism that has happened in our culture right every advancement we make seems to be tainted by greed or corruption or uh, selfishness of people people's hearts get in there and they decide to make it about themselves You see that over and over and over again. If science and technology are hope, they're a poor one. They have not actually solved our problems. Also, not only that, but we don't, in our hearts, we don't act the way we should. We are selfish. We notice greed in our hearts. We put ourselves above other people regularly, if we're honest with ourselves. And we harm other people. Additionally, when we've tried to find joy by pursuing what feels right to us, it hasn't actually brought fulfillment. 
It actually hasn't brought joy. It hasn't brought what we were looking for. When we follow our hearts, when we follow our desires, we often find ourselves in situations that are harmful to us. Not only that, but as much, even the most free, the people who have achieved what they thought they wanted to achieve, the people who are the most authentic, still deeply struggle with anxiety, still deeply struggle with depression, still deeply struggle with emptiness as well. When we pursue what's right to us, it doesn't necessarily give us what we're looking for. Our desires aren't trustworthy. The Bible tells us this psalm shapes us to know that our minds and our hearts need to be surrendered to the true king. He needs to be our king. It's not only because he is real, but it's also because he is good. Because he is the ultimate and only source of hope and joy. And our our, our king, he brings real hope to the real problems that we suffer with. Look at verses 1 to 2. This is what it's talking about. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. Our king is the one who brings salvation, brings fixing, brings restoration to this world. How? First, he reconciles us to himself. Maybe you didn't know that that was a problem. Maybe that wasn't something that you're thinking, oh, okay, well, that's my main problem. I need to be reconciled to God. But God tells us that actually that is the main problem. The main problem is a broken relationship between you and me. A broken relationship where you have been autonomous and I've been king and you haven't surrendered to my authority. And the problem is, you're not only not surrendered, you're an enemy. You are against me. But God, because he loves his people sacrificially, gives himself for them. He gives his life on the cross. That's what happens on the cross. Christ dies so that we can be reconciled to God. He takes the punishment that we deserved as God's enemies on himself and gives us his righteousness, his sonship, his uh, status before God. So when we come to God... We are now on good terms with him if we have faith in his son. This is good news because this is the beginning of the restoration process. Because as man gets reconciled to God, the earth begins moving back towards what it was meant to be. A world that functions in correct relationship with God. A world that functions the way that God created it to work. And how is he doing that? Well, by the power of his spirit in the hearts of believers, God is trimming away the impurities. God is changing our hearts to less and less be selfish. To less and less look to ourselves over others. To look to ourselves over him. To less and less trust ourselves and our own desires. And to more and more love him. To more and more love our neighbors. To more and more trust that what he says is best for us is actually best for us. This is what's actually happening in your heart when you come to worship, when you participate in the community of God's people, when you are reading your Bible or praying. Private and public worship, these things are shaping your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit to become more and more centered on your King rather than on yourself. This is hope. This is hope because that means humanity has, can be changed. There is hope for my broken heart. 
I'm talking about my sadness. I'm talking about the broken parts of my desires that long for things that are harmful to me and harmful to other people. God is changing those. And we need that. That's what we long for for our others, right? We long for them to change. For our government to change. For people in power to change. For our neighbors to change. For our husbands, for our wives to change. To start seeking what's good rather than what's selfish. But we can't do that on our own. We need the Lord to do that. And the Lord is our hope for that. And then not only that, but he's also restoring creation. God is making all things new. There's a day coming when God will return the world to the way it was meant to be. Where he is present fully with his people. They are in perfect relationship with him and perfect relationship with one another and perfect relationship with creation itself. That is the day we long for. That is real hope. A real vision of what the world could be. A hope that can never be achieved by human advancement. But only could be achieved by the miraculous power of God. He not only brings hope, but he also is the source of joy. What do the nations do when they see his salvation? When they see his rule? Well, they shout for joy. It says, verse 4, May the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? Because you rule the peoples with equity, equity and guide the nations of the earth. Whatever it is you think is going to be your source of true joy, true fulfillment in your life, doesn't matter. It can't be it unless it is following Jesus and having him as your king. That is what you are made for. That is actually what is going to bring you far more fulfillment than anything else. Is having Jesus as your king and following him and depending on him and trusting him. When we do what we are made for, we feel joy. There are many things that we are, we are made for and we've experienced those that give us joy. Maybe you've heard the story of um, the famous runner from England, Eric Little. Um, you've probably heard it in like six other sermons, but I'm going to use it again anyway. Um, Eric Little has this very famous quote, very famous Olympic runner from England, basically who the movie Star- Chariots of Fire was about. He would run and he said, when I run... I feel God's pleasure because God had made him to be a runner. When he ran, he experienced the pleasure of God because he was doing what he was made by God to do. That is a little piece of what he was made by God to do. The bigger piece that all of us share, not all of us are runners, me included, but um, what we all share is that we are made to be people of the king. We're made to be children of God and when we live in on him we feel God's pleasure doesn't mean that you will feel happiness you'll get everything you want but when you ultimately want him when you ultimately follow him you will experience joy that supersedes your situations you will experience contentment that surpasses what you would expect from the circumstances around you because you will feel the pleasure of God is far better than anything your heart desires or any other thing your heart desires. This will actually give us joy depending on the Lord and trusting Him and obeying Him. So the narrative is that He is our King. He is our hope. He is our joy. Who are we in this narrative? Well, we're children, of, we're beloved people of the king, we're children of God. But specifically in this psalm, it talks about us as witnesses. 
as witnesses to what God has done. Maybe when you hear the term witnesses or witnessing, it's kind of like a, a scary word. I don't really like that word. Because you might think of it as, you know, witnessing is what I was taught to do when I was being a Christian. Like I need to go like try to convince other people to believe what I believe. And this idea of convincing is just kind of like uncomfortable to you. Well, that's not what a witness is. A witness, when you go to court, the witness's job is not to convince the jury of what's true or untrue. That's the lawyer's job. That's the advocate's job. No, the job of the witness is to testify to what they have seen and heard. To testify to what they've experienced. As witnesses, we are to testify not argue, we are to testify to what God has done in our lives. Look at verses 1 to 2. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. So the passage starts with this plea to God for his blessing, for him to give us gifts. But then it shapes the way we think about God's gifts. Because it's not about me getting the gifts. It says, So that your ways may be known on earth. Your salvation among all nations. Why does God bless us? Why does God give us hope and joy? Well, he gives us those things so that we can be a witness to how he has changed our lives to the nations. The ways that he has affected us, the way that his hope and joy have penetrated into our hearts and revealed to us satisfaction that we can never have expected. Those things we get to share with the rest of the world. To share with the nations. This is good news. God blesses his people so that we can make him known to others. God wants us to be people who testify to what he has done in our hearts to other people. Now, of course, there are times when there are apologetic arguments are helpful to engage um, with skeptics or with, with other non-believers. But ultimately and primarily, our role is to be witnesses of what God has done to us. To share, this is what God has done in my life. Maybe the idea of sharing your faith is still uncomfortable to you because um, you have this feeling like, what right do I have to push my beliefs on other people? It feels like pushing my beliefs on other people. Even this question, like, why should I push my beliefs on other people? Even this question reveals a worldview. It actually reveals a worldview that says each person has their own private truths. Yeah, Jesus is great for me, but Jesus might not be great for you. Jesus is great for me, but Jesus is not great for you. Well, if the Bible is true, which it's either true or it's not, but we believe it's true, This means that everybody needs Jesus. Jesus is actually the answer to the true longings of everybody's heart. He is the answer. He is the hope and joy for everybody. And so when we share our faith, we're not sharing as if like, well, I've got this philosophical idea that I need you to agree with me on. It's saying, no, I have hope and joy to offer you. And I would love to tell you about it. It doesn't mean that they're going to accept it. It doesn't mean you can force anyone to accept it, or, nor that you should. It doesn't mean that you won't come to them, you come to them in 
in like pride or arrogance. You don't come to them in pride or arrogance thinking you're superior, but you, you come sharing, this is the hope and joy I've experienced. I would love for you to be able to participate in this with me. Because it's beautiful. And it's what would answer your problems, what would solve your longings. I remember in, in, uh, in college, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. I remember in college, every April, I think it was, Ben and Jerry's ice cream store in Chattanooga would have free ice cream day, which meant no matter how many people came, you didn't have to buy anything, they would give you a free ice cream cone. You walk in the door, they hand you a free ice cream cone. Walk in the door, hand you a free ice cream cone. Open to everybody, as many people as want to come. It was exciting. So what did we do? Every time that we heard that it was free ice cream day, this is before Facebook was really big, so you kind of had to hear it through word of mouth. Um, we would go tell everybody. We'd go say, hey, it's free ice cream day. You want to come? You want to come? You want to come? Hey, you have a car? You have a car? Let's coordinate. Let's all go and get free ice cream, right? You wanted to tell everyone because you wanted to share this exciting news with everyone else. Everyone gets free ice cream. Don't you want free ice cream? Of course you want free ice cream. This is, this is a great, great day. Same kind of thing. We aren't sharing, we're not convincing people of a philosophical idea. We're sharing good news, exciting things with other people. We want them to know it because it's so good. It's good news. We found something so great in Christianity, in Jesus. And we want the world to know about it. We want the world to know what he has done for us so that they also can experience it. Just a couple practical considerations for those of us here who are Christians. I recognize that not everyone here is. Um, But for those of us who are Christians, as you are thinking about sharing your faith, as you're thinking about testifying, witnessing to what God has done in your life, um, two considerations. One, pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Ask I know it's hard. Like you're not trying to like, I mean, it's trying to go up to people and like force the opportunity to happen. That doesn't usually work out so well. But pray for them. Think about the people in your life who you really want to know about Jesus. You want them to know about Jesus. Pray for opportunities to share with them. God loves to answer that prayer. He loves to give you opportunities. And when you pray about it, when you're living in expectation of opportunities that will come, you're much more likely to take them. Second, don't give a spiel. Don't give like a a pre-prepared presentation on the gospel for them. It usually doesn't really encounter people where they are. That just feels preachy. It is. Know what people's real needs and longings are. Know your friends well. Get to know them really well. Know their longings. Know their needs. Know what makes them tick. Know where they pursue joy, where they experience sadness, where they experience hardship. And seek to share how Jesus is the ultimate and only hope for those needs. Start with knowing knowing them. It requires you to know your friends, know these people. We should be people who know one another. And care deeply about how God meets real needs. It's actually what we do every time we preach. Um, someone in this room right now was calling me out that me and Bryce Waller and Andrew Lupton were all preach the exact same sermons. Basically, we all have the exact same format for the way we preach. And that's 
somewhat true. We're a little bit different in our styles, but we have a very similar format. I'm going to get a little meta for you to kind of explain what we're doing when we're preaching. Whenever we preach, you'll start noticing, now that I've said it, you're going to notice it every time, we start with a problem. We always, always start with a problem. We say, hey, here is this problem of shame. Here's this problem of loneliness. Here's this problem of wondering if, you're, if God loves you. Here's this problem of, like I did today, of what is the world's worldview. Uh, here is this problem. Here's that problem. And then we talk about how does Jesus himself ultimately and truly meet that need? How does he fix that problem? How does he answer that question, that hardship? Right? That's how we do it. That's what we do every single time. That's the same mentality. I'm not saying prepare a sermon, but that's the same mentality I want us to have as we engage with non-believers. It's like, how does Jesus meet real felt needs? Does he matter? If you can't answer why Jesus actually matters to the person, then why is that person going to care? Right? Why does Jesus actually matter to the people around you? Why does he matter to you? In this way, what we're doing is we're building bridges. We're saying, hey, just like you, I experience loneliness. But loneliness is not going to be answered anywhere else other than Jesus. Just like you, I experience anxiety. Just like you, I experience grief. Whatever it is, Jesus is the answer. Sharing how Jesus has impacted us in those ways. In this way, you're not debating. You're not debating with people, trying to convince them of a truth. What you're doing is you're providing them good news. Which is what the gospel means. You're providing them beautiful, true, and ultimate solution to their real problems. One of the things I'd like to encourage us to do this week is to uh, continue revisiting this psalm. The psalm, as it, shape, as, it, as it is worship, it shapes us. I want to encourage you each day to read this psalm, but not just to read it, to pray it. To take this psalm and to pray it to the Lord himself. And as you do, let him shape your heart. Let him shape your heart to see him as king. Let him shape your heart to see him as the source of your hope and your joy. And let him shape your heart to have eyes for how the blessings he has shown you might be benefits and gifts for those around you. And that he will give you opportunities to share him with others. In fact, I want to close right now with prayer. But instead of praying my own words, I just want to pray the words of this psalm. So I'm going to ask uh, the slides to throw them back up on the screen. And you guys keep your eyes open during this prayer. And if you want, if you're a Christian today, pray along this with me. Um, in your hearts. I'll, I'll read it out loud. May God be gracious to us. And bless us. And make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. May the peoples praise you. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the people with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please stand with me and let's go to the Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
If you would like more information or would like to support the Ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.